Good to see everyone here. My name is Nick, and uh, one of the elders here. We will be finishing up Ephesians chapter 4 today, so if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or open it up in your app or anything else, that'd be great. And I'm going to go ahead and start some prayer, and then we'll go ahead and dive into the text. Lord God, we thank you for the words that you are speaking to us through Paul and through this letter. I pray that you remind us of our identity as we look through this passage. I pray, Lord God, that the truth you have for us resonates with us and that we take from here what you have us to take. In your name we pray. Amen. So let me start by asking you a question. Not that one. The door. Who do you think you are? Like from an individual perspective, who are you? How do you define yourself? How do you think about yourself? How do you talk about yourself to others? And most importantly, when you're lying in bed at night or when you're in the shower or when you're driving in the car on the way to work, how are you talking about yourself in your head? The question of who we are and what our identity is is probably like the biggest driving factor in so many of the conversations the world is having. Right? This conversation defines politics. This conversation defines education, international relations, the economy, healthcare, everything. It's so important to the human race that people will do anything to help figure out what our identity is. We will do anything to figure out who we are, and that spirals into so many different facets when you look around the world and you watch the news and you follow social media and all those things, right? Like, what's my gender? What's my sexuality? What's my career path? What's my family? What's my right? What's my, uh, oops, sorry. What's my financial stability? What's my political party? What's my nation? What's my Enneagram type? What's my Myers-Briggs type? Remember Myers-Briggs? And on and on we go because there is an obvious and this deep longing within our souls to figure out why we exist and who we are while we're here. And the thought is, if I can figure out who I am, then I can figure out why I matter. I work with middle schoolers for a living, and like this is the conversation day in and day out, right? With middle schoolers, if you have middle schoolers, have you ever been in like the same city as a middle schooler? Like you just know. They're trying to figure out who they are, what they like, what they don't like, what is cool, what is not cool, what is popular, should I wear deodorant or not, like on and on they go. But honestly, it all boils down to who am I? And that's that transitional phase where they're figuring out I'm not just who I'm being told I am by my parents, I'm trying to figure out who I am. But that's just like a microcosm of like all of us, right? Everybody in every facet of living asks the same question. And this is not new. If you go all the way back to the very beginning, go all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, Adam and Eve made a decision based on who they thought or what they thought their identity was. They thought their identity was to have all knowledge possible and to be equal to God. They chose that as their identity as opposed to what God called them. And since then, it's been the struggle of humanity. So again, our focus today is this question, who do you think that you are? So Paul addresses this in this section of Ephesians chapter 4. So just a reminder before, as we get started, 
Paul planted churches right all around um, the Middle East and Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was one of those churches. A number of years have gone by since he planted Ephesus. He's now under house arrest in Rome, and he's writing a letter to this church to remind them of doctrinal truths and how to live out those truths in Christ. Remember, this is a church that Paul knew really well. From what we know, he um, stayed in Ephesus longer than any other church that he planted, about three years or so. So he, it was very close to his heart. He knew the people there. These are words being written to friends and fellow believers that he knew and that he ministered alongside of. So this is an intimate letter, not just a random post that he's making to some other churches that he's not connected with. This is a truly deep, like, I'm, I care about you. This is what I need you to know type of letter. And remember, as we continue on the chapter four, like Ernie shared last week, everything Paul set up in chapters one to three was like doctrinal truths, right? So one and three is like, here are the doctrinal truths that we agree. And now as we go into the rest of Ephesians, it's taking these truths and applying it to our lives. So if you take these truths, the rest of the letter is saying, okay, this is true. How do we live that out? What does that mean for us as followers? So I'm going to read this whole section at once, and then we'll go back and break it up. So big block of text but we'll come back to it, so don't worry about that. Starting chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits with the occasion that it may be give, they may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So big block of scripture, right? Like I said, we're going to go back through. But I want you to take a closer look here or, or work with me here because like on the surface, you just read this passage and what it looks like is just a checklist, right? A checklist of things that you need to do as a Christian. And if you do them, that's what defines you. But it's not. It touches on the reality of who we truly are in Christ and how Christ sees us and how that identity is what defines us. This is more than just having to be in Christ and figure out what it means. Like, again, you read this, easy to think, like, hey, if my identity is in Christ and this is what Paul is saying, then I guess that there's more things I need to work on doing. And you can get, like, okay, this is another thing to put on my plate. I got to make sure every day that I do these things, et cetera, et cetera. But I like how the way that Daryl Johnson in his commentary on Ephesians says it in reference to this chunk of passage. He says, we miss Paul's intention 
if we turn these exhortations into new rules and regulations by which we must by which we must now abide through his many exhortations he's simply describing the way of being inherent to the new reality so he's coming back to what is our identity and question of who we are but more specifically who is determining who we are the christ is determining who we are are we trying to control our own life or are we surrendering it to who jesus made us to be are we trying to be our own lord like adam and eve or do we rest in knowing that god is who identifies us the world looks around and decides that you know what we know better about determining who we are we can figure it out ourselves but paul very specifically calls this out in the first few verses of the section right he says again in verse 17 going back to the beginning now i say this and testify in the lord that you must no longer walk as the gentiles do in the futility of their minds they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. When Paul is talking about the Gentiles here, he specifically means anyone not in Christ, right? He's talking about like the greater population of people not in Christ. And remember, this carries even more weight to the audience Paul's writing to because the church is, in Ephesus, a church of Gentiles people who were not known, who did not know Christ, they were not Jewish, they did not bring, they came to know the Lord. So he's reminding them, remember how you used to live and how you used to think of life and how you used to think of who you are. Don't go back to that. Ignore that. That's not the right way. He's saying, look, we know, you know how the people apart from God are supposed to walk. Or sorry, the people apart from God, how they do walk. But that is a futile life. They try and figure out all the things that they think is right and that they think is permissible. They think their identities are decided and set in pleasure, in greed, and impurity of all kinds. They think that who they are can be determined by what they decide they want to do in the moment. They think that they have agency and choice in determining the life they want to live and who they are put here to be or who they are while they're here. And they think that that's okay because they think that they know better. But Paul specifically says they have futility of mind. Paul's saying, no, apart from, those apart from God have no clue what they're talking about or what they're doing. They're darkened in mind. They're ignorant. They don't realize they're made to be so much more than, the world, than their worldly pleasures. He does not pull punches here. He is being harsh to them. He's not saying like, yeah, you should be nice to them because they're kind of off the bed. He's saying they don't know what they're doing. They think they know what they're doing, but they don't. They can't know what they're doing. They've dreamed up a life of what they think they are, of who they should be, but they fall so short from what God sees us as. I love the way Brendan Manning in his book, Abba's Child, says it. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is an illusion. The world around us has built up an illusion of what they think is right, on what is okay, on what is natural. And we see the effects of this, right? You look around the world, like, look at rates of depression and anxiety just all over the place. Look at the levels of unhappiness you see. Have you been checking your mail or reading the news lately? You see that people are building foundations on absolutely nothing, and they think they're the most secure foundations possible. They're building their lives on this bill of goods that the world has sold them, that they can find happiness if they're just true to themselves, right? 
and that they live the life they want to live and whoever they want to be, but we know, and Paul reminds us, that what it is is actually just an illusion. People are wandering around wondering why their life is unfulfilling, and it's because the enemy has blinded them by tapping into their hardened hearts and their darkened understanding, as Paul says. And this should break our hearts when we look around and see the deception of the world around us that people are living in. But it should also give us excitement because the gospel is not just about staying out of hell, right? The gospel is giving us access and information to a whole new way of living where our identity is secure and confirmed and built on Jesus and Christ alone. We can be, as the people of God, a beacon of light to those around us because Christ is the firm foundation that we rest our identity on. It's not an illusion. It's not nothing. It is the cross, and we have the privilege and ability to share that reality with the world around us. The Christian life is more than just about being saved from our sins, right? Although that's a key component of it. It's about this new life and new identity that we have in Christ, that we are secure in. And Paul reminds the Ephesians of this in the next group of verses. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, talking about the darkened mind, the futility of mind. Assuming that you may have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is far more, he reminds us again, of just a process of doing these things and not these things. This is literally putting aside the ignorance of our pre-Christ days and our pre-Christ darkened minds and putting on like a new outfit the true identity that we have in Christ and what he calls us by. And that true identity is much more than we think that it is. We live in a fallen world, right? And we can still get muddled and confused by who we are. We battle our own insecurities and anxieties all the time. We struggle with how do we present ourselves or who we try to be. But we need to remind ourselves of who God sees us as because of that is how we're defined. My wife likes reminding me of the story of Gideon. You guys know the story of Gideon, Book of Judges. Um, just short summary, Judges uh, tells the cycle of habitual failure and re uh, redemption of the nation of Israel. Israel sins. God sends in a different nation to conquer them and oppress them as punishment. After a time, Israel cries out in repentance. God raises up a hero, a judge, who liberates Israel, rules them. They worship God. The hero dies. Israel falls back into sin, and the cycle keeps repeating over and over and over again. One of those people was this guy named Gideon. At one point in this story, there's this nation Midian, Midian and Gideon, that's funny, was oppressing Israel, sorry, and uh, this angel of God comes down to Gideon, and he was going to tell Gideon that, hey, you are going to lead the people of Israel, and you're going to free them from your oppressors. And in Judges chapter 6, verse 11, this is how the angel of the Lord responds or talks to Gideon. He says, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the Terenbeth at Ophrah which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. This is the key verse. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. So the angel shows up, calls Gideon, hey, you're mighty man of valor. If an angel shows up and calls you that, that's probably, you know, you're probably going to represent that, right? Not Gideon. 
Look what Gideon says in response, starting in verse 13. Gideon said to him, Please, my lord, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us from Egypt? And now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Again, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he, meaning Gideon, said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. So the angel shows up and calls Gideon, You're a mighty man of valor. And the first thing Gideon said is like, Eh, I think you got the wrong guy. <laughs> like, this is not me. Do you understand who I am? Like, I'm not very important. I'm not special. I'm just I'm making some wheat here in a wine press because that's what I do. Like, just no. And as you look through the rest of this portion of Judges, which talks about Gideon, you see the silliness come up over and over again. God tells Gideon to do something, and Gideon's first response is usually like, eh, are you sure about that? Let me put this, uh, this sheep thing on the grass and make it wet and not the grass. No, never mind, you did that, but I meant the other way, make the grass wet, not the sheep. It's all this like, weirdness he does and silliness. But how did God identify Gideon? Mighty man of valor. Our reality doesn't necessarily match up to the reality who God sees when he looks at us. Gideon's identity was not about what he was doing. Because if it was about what he was doing, his, he would have shown up and be like, hey, little man of cowardness. <laughs> right? But that's not what God said. You are a mighty man of valor. We see this pattern all through scripture, right? God constantly, literally changes people's names to match the identity that he sees them in. Abram becomes Abraham. Jacob becomes Israel. Cephas becomes Peter. Saul becomes Paul. God breaks the identities that they've created for themselves or that somebody has created for them and reminds us that he created us and that our identities are in him. Look at this quote by George MacDonald. I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature that I could think of. For to have been thought about, born in God's thought, and then made by God is the dearest, grandest, and most precious thing in all thinking. When Paul says, take off your old self and have your mind renewed, he's reminding us your old self was in darkness and God's new identity for you is this fresh new thing. Now, this doesn't mean that you never struggle with identity issues ever again, right? Anyone who's spent one minute as a Christian knows that. It is a constant process of renewal. This is a, a present tense verb. Being renewed means you are constantly being renewed. My father-in-law shared uh, this thought with me um, a lot recently. Others too, but I'm up here, so it's about me. And um, we have this weird Western mindset where, like, because of how we do education, we think of growth and education and development as having an ending point, right? Like, if you're a student in here, and eventually you're going to finish high school, and you're looking at, like, hey, high school will be done at some point. And then maybe you go to college, and if you go to college four to five years, you get a degree. You're done with college unless you want to go more and get a master's degree. And then it's, but there's always an ending point of education at some point you stop learning or stop growing or stop developing in a certain way and then you go do the work that's not how the christian life works the christian life is a constant process of being renewed of our mind we never finish we are constantly pouring into other people people are constantly pouring into us and it doesn't matter if you're one or 101 or older or younger this is a constant process and constant battle of renewal and reminding and growing 
Christian discipleship is not about getting to a certain part, having our sins forgiven, and then calling it good. We are constantly being sanctified and renewed, and there's no end to that point until we're back with Jesus. And that's part of who we are. We must constantly renew our thoughts and grow to be more like Christ. It's not that we thought one type of thought, and then one morning or one afternoon or one evening or one worship service later, now we no longer think that way. We can't just check in on Jesus and call ourselves good. We can't just check in with church and call ourselves good. We can't just check in on our community and call ourselves good. And we can't do that and then expect our identity issues to be resolved. That's not how it works. Paul's telling us we must constantly be renewing our minds to be more like Christ so we remind ourselves and fit into the identity that God calls us as. In the next section, Paul goes in the more deep uh, detail here verse 25 therefore having put away falsehood let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another be angry do not sin do not let the sun go down on your anger give us and give no opportunity to the devil let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that you may have something to share with anyone in need let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Again, what I said before, it's easy to look at this and be like, this is my checklist now, right? Like, well, good thing I didn't let the sun go down on my anger, so plus one point to me, but I did have corrupting speech come out of my mouth earlier today in traffic, so minus one point, but I broke even, so I must be a pretty good Christian still, right? That's okay. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's reminding us of who we are at our very core, who God sees us as, not what we do, who does God see us as. Because it's who we are, we do not speak falsely. We speak truth. Because of who we are, we do not sin in our anger. Because of who we are, we do not steal, but work hard so we can provide for others. Because it's who we are, we don't let corrupting talk come out of our mouths. But we speak love and kindness and build people up. Because of who we are, we don't get consumed with bitterness or slander or have malice. But we are kind people who have tender hearts to all people and forgive one another because Christ forgave us. And this even goes into like how we view other people because if we're agreeing that this is our identity for ourselves, guess what? That means as you look around this room, this is the identity of everybody in here as a follower of Christ. It means every single person who's a follower of Christ falls under this identity. Whether we get along with the person or not, whether somebody may annoy us or not, maybe we may have differing opinions on things or not, our identity is in Christ, not what we think of one another. Daryl Johnson, again, kind of summarizes the, the way this works. Um, I'm going to paraphrase him a little bit to keep it shorter. It was a longer passage, but he says, Put away falsehood and speak truth. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not give the devil a place from which to work. Be angry and do not sin. Do not give the devil a launching pad for his destructive plans. Let the thief no longer steal. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Do not give the devil a platform. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander be put away from you. Do not give the devil space to work. These elements are choices we make and are things we refine in ourselves. It's who we are. Just like if you're a parent or you're hired at a new job, you put in the work, you study, you learn, you grow to be the best version of that, right? The same it is in our walk. Some days we do sin in our anger. 
But we don't get to just rest in that and say like, oh, I guess that's who I am now. I'm somebody who sins in my anger. We don't get to say that about ourselves. Some days we speak evil words or we say words that harm or tear down others, but we don't continue to do that because we remind ourselves that's not who I am. It's not something I do. It's not who I am. And the enemy wants to worm his way in and prevent us from embracing this identity because it's so easy to be like, there's no way God can love me. Look how much I mess up. How much more time, I'm talking personally, do I reflect on ways I have failed than ways God has blessed me or redeemed me? Maybe you feel the same way. And it's the enemy worming ourselves in and be like, don't worry about, no, that's not your identity. Your identity is what you've done wrong. And that sucks for you. You can't tell people that. You can't be in community with that. Stay away. You're not worthy of God's love. And Paul reminds us, no, that's not who you are. You're not defined by what you do. You're defined by what God says you are or who God says you are. And of course you're going to have days you don't love others. And of course you're going to have days where you don't speak kindly. But again, that's not what defines us. Christ defines you. I'm reminded of another uh, thing Paul wrote this time to the Galatians in his letter to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. You're probably familiar with this passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What does the fruit of the Spirit mean? It's the reality of the lives of people saved by Christ and have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. So any believer of Jesus will produce their fruit like a healthy tree. And like a healthy tree, what it produces is its identity. An apple tree produces apples. That's what it does. The apple tree can't wake up one day and say, like, I'm not an apple anymore. I've made some bad apples. I've got some worms wiggling in there and ruining some things. I guess I'm not good at No, an apple tree is an apple tree. You're a Christian. Christ has saved you. Your identity is this. And it's freeing. Instead of having to be the ones to figure out and determine what is right living and what is right identity or what's right anything, Christ does that for us. Again, look at this list. Love. We all have love. We all bear love to one another. We don't get to say, oh, you know what? I'm not really a loving person. You literally are. It's literally the greatest quality and reflects God's nature. And so that's who we are. Joy. We have joy because of the salvation we've received, and joy is part of who we are. We don't get to say, I'm not really a joyful person. You are joyful. You've been saved by Christ. Peace. We're no longer the enemy of God. We're his adopted children, and so we have peace in our souls and how we can approach God. Patience. We don't get to say that we aren't patient people, especially if you're a parent. I know the feeling. But guess what? We are. It's a core part of us because we know that all things will happen according to the will of God, and that patience means we can get out of our heads all the ways we think the world should work and when. Kindness. We show kindness to one another and all of our neighbors. And guess what? That means we are kind people. That's the hope and identity that Christ has bestowed on us. Goodness. We work for the benefit of others and for the advancement of the kingdom. We don't get to say, I'm not a good person because you are in Christ. It's who you are. We serve in church and our community, not because we have to or we should, but because we work to benefit others. It's our identity. Faithfulness. We do what we say we are going to do. We are faithful to the gospel and the work it entails, whether we think it's comfortable or not, because it's our identity. 
Gentleness, we are gentle in speech and actions towards people we agree with and disagree with. Our identity is of a person or of a people who exposes others to the reality of life in Christ, and that is through gentleness. Self-control, this one can be so hard to believe. The ability to resist our fleshly desires and sins and rely on God instead, but just like all the other ones, we don't get to say, oh, I just don't have any self-control. I'll just always struggle with this. But guess what? God has said your identity is one of self-control. God gives us the strength to resist and repent, and the repent part is the key one there. Now again, like I've said before, and I want to make sure we're on the same page, you may be thinking like, well, you say that, but I'm not patient with my kids, or I don't have self-control. And again, I'm not saying that will never happen. I'm not saying we will never mess up. I'm not saying we'll ever fall, never fall short in that area. What I'm saying is that's not who you are. Who you are are these things in Christ. Gideon was a mighty man of valor, regardless of whether he was mighty or not in the moment. Zacchaeus repented, gave all of his money back to the people he had stolen, and then some. And I'm sure that there were moments Zacchaeus was like, oh, why'd I do that? Might have even come from a good place, like maybe I could have done more for the kingdom if I just had kept my money I had stolen from people. But that wasn't who he was after he met Jesus. We will constantly have to work on these areas But Paul is reminding us here, after laying out all the doctrinal truths in the first three chapters, that as we walk out our relationship with Jesus, we're peeling off the old ways of living, the old ways of being consumed by that identity, being defined by what we think or what we do or what we don't do. And instead, we're literally putting on freshly renewed day in and day out who Christ calls us to be. You can put away falsehood and you can speak truth. You can resist sinning while angry. You can work hard and provide and help others. You can resist corrupting and negative talk. You can avoid bitterness and wrath and anger because you are patient and you are kind and you are faithful and you are gentle and you have self-control. We are all mighty men and women of God, of valor. We are new creations. And God sees us as his children who he loves more than we can even imagine. And so ask yourself again, who do you think you are? And if you doubt that it's somebody that God loves, then I encourage you to read this passage again and remind yourselves that you have removed the old way of living and the old way of thinking and the old way of doing, and that in Christ you have put on new identity, and you are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and in true holiness, and that is who you are. Let's pray.